My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. The face is a picture of the mind with the eye as its interpreter. My guest today does more than just look to those eyes for what they interpret. It looks at them for their biological composition, their structure, and their ability to carry out that important function this vital organ plays as part of our sensory system. Dr. Courtney Crawford, thanks so much, uh, Courtney, for making yourself available. If you would just start out by just telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and uh, just a short summary on who you are. Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have a story like, like most. Um, it started in Des Moines, Iowa. So I'm in, in Iowan, there's, there's always a joke that uh, people always wonder, are there blacks from Iowa? <laughs> Here you go. So uh, there, there were three of us, my parents and I. So um, no, Iowa's a great place. The, some of the best people that I know are, are from the Midwest and um, it's where my story starts. So. I went to school uh, in Des Moines, uh, K through 12. And then I went to Washington University in St. Louis uh, for undergraduate school. Um, Did a Fulbright fellowship in Panama following that. Um, And then I uh, progressed on to medical school and and time in the army, 10 years, and uh, a retina fellowship. I'm most proud of uh, one, my faith in God, uh, my family uh, led by my amazing wife, who's my best friend. And we have two phenomenal kids, uh, Cameron and Casey, who just make our life so special. So that's that's where I came from, kind of in a nutshell. And uh, yes, I am a practicing retina specialist and I really appreciate um, uh, the introduction, um, the eye is a very special organ. Vision um, is uh, incredibly precious, and oftentimes you don't realize its impact until um, you don't have it like you used to. So, yeah, yeah. Well, as uh, someone who's worn corrective lenses for thirty uh, something odd years now, I, I I have a sincere appreciation. Uh, for what you do, but I want to go back to Iowa. Where are you from in Iowa? And talk to us about what it was like growing up in your special part of the world. Sure. Um, so, so one, you know, uh, I had a mother and a father, um, both who loved me, encouraged me, exposed me um, to the elements of the world. So, um, I had a support network and um, kind of a springboard to 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 leap from. So, um, if I could, you know, wish anything upon young kids today is that they feel supported. They have a framework that um, they can kind of jump from, like I did. Got it. And so you didn't mention what town it was in Iowa. I'm cu- I'm no. just curious. Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, Des Moines. Yeah, yeah. You did say yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't. That's one of those states that's still on my bucket list. You know, I've got this. I've got to visit all 50 states. So you might have just hastened my steps to uh, wanting to get there to Des Moines. So 
Um, so There's talk, a lot of field, so just beware. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of field, a lot of cows. But uh, I can imagine. I can play. imagine. So you talked about the role that your parents played uh, in your upbringing. Obviously, you know, having a, a, a supportive family is, is a core cornerstone, I think, of helping people be on their way. But uh, explain to me a bit about what was it like, you know, going through elementary school and grade school? I, I presume you might have been, you know, one of a few minority students in the, you know, sure. most of the environment you grew up in. Sure. I mean, you know, being the only black kid in the class, that uh, that was a staple. I mean, that was every year. But, uh, you know, you, you can't say you don't see color because you do. I knew I was the only black kid as, and um, that didn't stop me from having, you know, a lot of friends. Um, I was student body president pretty much every year. Um, but, uh, you know, I embraced my color. I knew that I was different um, and uh, I knew that my time would come um, when I could be around more people that looked like me, that, you know, for some that might not be of interest for me, it was, and I knew my time was coming. But um, in the interim, uh, I learned how to interact and just how to be around comfortably people that don't look like me. And a lot of times in, in the higher circles, professionally speaking, um, not everybody looks like you. So you need to get comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So beyond being student body president all those years, mm -hmm. uh, were you involved in any athletics or, or what were your the interests at that point in life? So I, uh, now, this is where your parents say you have to do something. So I, I started playing violin when I was three. Um, I don't play violin any longer. I, that, was a, uh, that was a painful 10 years, but uh, I, I appreciate classical music now as a result. Um, I started playing hockey when I was six. So, uh, and I still play hockey. I love, I love the sport. Um, played golf and tennis. Little bit of a country club kid, maybe growing up, um, and then just uh, just stayed active. Um, you know, um, exposure was just uh, paramount for me. So you know, I um, I started learning Spanish in high school, um, took Spanish in college, for example. Um, ended up majoring in Spanish, and and I've been fluent in Spanish, you know, for the last. 30 years, uh, yeah, 30 years. Um, that was actually what led me to do, pursue the Fulbright Fellowship in Panama where I lived for a year. And then before that, I, I lived in Chile for, for a year. So um, anyway, I mean, if, if, if I could, you know, to your listeners, if, if I could just convey the importance of exposure, I mean, in so many facets of my life, I, I didn't realize the value um, while I was going through it, um, yeah. but but you end up developing and fine tuning so many facets of who you are, um, and this is just who I am now. Yeah, yeah. Now you go through high school. Um, how did you decide on Washington State in St. Louis? I know it's not too far from Iowa. Was that part of your thinking, or would you already know what you wanted to major in it? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of young black kids, I, you know, I, 
I did well in school and, um, you know, it's like the, the, the pinnacle of, achie- of achievement when you're in high school is if you can get a scholarship to college. So, so that's, that's where my focus was, um, starting as soon as uh, sophomore, junior year. Um, I applied to the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, got accepted to those because I knew they were full ride um, institutions. And then Washington University in St. Louis, that was, um, they, they had a full ride program uh, for black students called the Urban Scholars Program. Mm-hmm. And um, that program was amazing and still is. It embraced me. Um, Washington University is a predominantly white school, obviously, but the urban program is all black. So, you know, as I stated before, I knew that my time would come where I'd be around people that looked like me, like-minded, that thought like me, and um, WashU was that opportunity. And so that was my platform, I think, really to to blossom and feel comfortable in, in settings that uh, may be white or black, so. Yeah. How did you decide on a Spanish major? Uh, You know, so, I mean, I started Spanish when I was in high school and um, I, it was honestly a a pretty easy major, (laughs) you know, because I was pre-med, right? And pre-med was not easy. So, so I was like, can we, maybe we can balance uh, the level of difficulty in college. So uh, it, it really worked out great. I mean, to be pre-med, and to have something that you did well in um, and you enjoyed, um, like Spanish, it, it was good. It offered a reprieve, to be honest, and now I'm fluent. Okay, so you, you were pre-med. Um, how did you arrive at the decision to pursue medicine? Um, um, so when I was oh, probably five or six, I uh, I spent time with uh, with my my uncle who was a veterinarian, and um, and he kind of encouraged me and introduced me to a lot of his friends who were uh, black surgeons. He would send me uh, news articles of of uh, prominent black doctors, and so uh, it was probably his seed that was planted early that. Uh, let me know, hey, this is a possible career path um, if you work at it. So here I am. I I, I really just wanted to be a surgeon um, okay. all throughout high school and, and college. Anytime there was a dissection lab, I was all in. Um, the ophthalmology retina thing, that, that kind of came about later um, in medical school. And uh, and here we are. So before we get to the part of medical school, you you decide. I, I presume Washington University had you had thought through what your pathway was going to be, and WashU was sort of a first step along the way. But talk to us a bit. What was your experience like at Washington University? Sure. Um, you know, it was a uh, kind of a whole new world. Um, not only were, you know, I had a totally different friend center. Um, you know, I was around just a lot more black people than I'd ever been around before. Um, college was challenging. I mean, 
I thought that high school had prepared me uh, pretty well, but as I came to find out, I didn't really know how I learned best. And, and that's a, a key thing I think to develop early on is to know how you learn um, to make your learning most successful. And so admittedly, I did not know. So, so I w I've always worked hard, but uh, maybe I, I, I could have worked a little bit more efficiently. So, so that was a learning process. Um, you know, being away from home, um, St. Louis didn't look like Des Moines, Iowa in cornfield. So, uh, you know, that was, that was a welcome difference. And, um, you know, Washu, it was just, uh, just the time to grow, you know, like, like most young people in college, um, you should make mistakes. Um, you should try things that you haven't, you know, safely. And, um, you know, you should try to, to become your own person and, um, and flourish. And I think that's, that's what happened. Um, if, if you do decide to do uh, a medical route, um, as you mentioned, you know, pre-med is kind of the route that you choose and then you can decide other majors. You don't have to major in biology or chemistry per se. Um, I will say that, you know, if, if you do want to be a doctor and you do pursue pre-med, it's a grind. I mean, you have to be uber focused uh, to do it. So um, being a doctor is great, but if you're not passionate about being a doctor, there's many other great fields. I mean, it's not worth it to do it if it's, if it's not your passion. So um, for me, it was my passion but uh, the attrition of pre-medical students was 40%. So, you know, a lot of people found passions in other areas, you know, during the pre-med journey. And that's great. That's what college is about. Um, that's not a misstep in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you're going through WashU, you, you get focused. Now yep. you're thinking through what your next steps are. How do you transition from Washington University to south of the border? Sure. Well, okay. I mean, if let me back up just just for a second. Uh, so, college was hard. Um, there is a, a medical school entrance exam that that you have to take. It's called the MCAT, and it is uh, very challenging. So. I'm probably the only black person who's had challenges with standardized tests. I'm sure. No, I'm, I, I'm being facetious, but uh, you know, yeah, standardized tests, they were challenging for me. I mean, ever since I was a little kid and who knows, who knows where that comes from, but uh, people smarter than me, I think are starting to figure uh, out, figure out that, that uh, we need to address that. So, Anyway, the MCAT came around and when I tell you I failed, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't even close. So, mm. so you know, imagine, um, you know, 20 years of your life, for the most part, all career-wise you want to do is become a doctor and, and the benchmark of success for, okay, now you can enter medical school and get accepted the MCAT and, um, 
I I think I might have actually missed how to spell my name on the test. I got a score that was so low. <laughs> Man, I was devastated. Let me tell you. So uh, that's that's where you get down on your knees and pray and and ask the Lord for some perspective and for people in your life that can kind of show you that um, you can get up from this. So so I did. You know, and uh, got up from it, took the test again, passed it this time. Wasn't pretty, mm. but, but we passed it. And um, and I guess this is the area where, um, you know, th- there's not always a straight path to get to your destination. And um, in hindsight, you relish and you appreciate um the, the hurdles and the obstacles that they're they're not desirable at the time but they do make you better but but at the time you do have to realize that I might have to take a detour and and correct the path or steer around this obstacle and and so I knew that um, the opportunity to go to Panama with a Fulbright fellowship was was not only you know um, um, a way to steer around this this medical obstacle, but it also could could bolster my uh, resume, uh, broaden my 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 breadth of experiences, and 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 really really solidify um, uh, my proficiency in Spanish, and it and it also gave me a year to say is this what I want? Is there a way to prepare a little bit better? Um, and just kind of refocus, reset. And so I did that. Um, while I was in Panama. Before you cover that, how did you come about the Fulbright Scholars Program? Because I know that's something a lot of people are just not even aware uh, that such programs exist. Sure. So, so their programs. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, the Rhodes Scholarship, yeah. uh, the Marshall Scholarship, um, and other similar type scholarships that can happen are like the Fulbright um, um, Rotary. You know, there's 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 multiple opportunities to to seek um, you know personal education and get paid for it and have it look good on a resume, but more so, you know, um, in, increase your breadth of experiences. So I I was exposed to those. I had uh, friends and classmates who were Rhodes and Marshall and Fulbrights. And I figure it couldn't hurt, you know, why not apply? Why not me? Um, um, the worst they could say was no, um, not this year. So I, I just threw it. I just applied. Applied at the same time I did all those 40 medical schools. And I was just going to see where the dust settled. Um, The dust settled on obtaining the Fulbright, which I was so honored, um, and uh, getting denied from 39 medical schools. So Mm. (laughs) a lot of rejections, but I got one acceptance. Mm. That's all me. So with the one acceptance, and the the Fulbright, I deferred medical school for a year, and and took on um, the Fulbright fellowship. So, okay. 
Okay, now back to where we were. You were just talking about uh, embarking on that journey for the for the uh, for the scholarship program. Sure. So, uh, twenty one. Yeah, twenty one years old, and um, the Fulbright, I think, at the time gave you oh twenty five to thirty thousand dollars, you know, to live on for the for the year, for, which at the time was like really good money, you know, for a high school, for a college graduate. So um, it was, it was amazing. You know, I, um, I, my, my point of contact was the ambassador for, for Panama, the U.S. ambassador. I worked at the embassy. Um, I had my own apartment and, uh, and I had a research project uh, with this thesis that I created at the inception of the of the program, and then just continued to work on the thesis and had a final final product at the end. Um, a lot of work, a lot of fun, um, experience that I'll never forget. Um, so it was it was it was powerful. I mean, it, it it really I think put my life on a different trajectory in terms of um, seeing what's what's possible out there. Um, I still would love to be an ambassador. That's that's my pipe dream. So everybody's got to have one. <laughs> Absolutely, and it might not be too far fetched. Just you know, just know. keep striving. <laughs> uh, so now, who was the lucky medical school out of the forty that oh, rolled over and said, "Okay, you can come along"? Sure, sure. So Michigan State, Michigan State College of Human Medicine. Um, you know, I, I appreciate them because they were able to look at the full package. And I, you know, had to take the MCAT twice. My grades were, oh, fair. Um, you know, I think it was a, uh, it, I was a calculated risk, you know. <laughs> so black male um, coming from Iowa, diverse background, maybe subpar academic record probably works pretty hard, um, pretty focused, uh, but but still unproven, right? So um, you only needed one, you know, just to take a risk on you. And, and I think that's how it is for, for many people. Um, uh, it just, it takes one institution, one, one mentor uh, who sees something, something different in you. So um, that's what it was for me. And in medical school, um, it, a few minutes ago, I spoke how I, when I entered college, I still didn't know how I learned best. In medical school, I finally learned how Courtney learns best. And um, that just completely changed uh, my, my learning progression. And medical school was um, extremely doable. I don't want to disrespect and say it was easy, but I mean, I kicked butt because I learned how Courtney learned and, um, it made sense. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I've heard people describe medical school, uh, in a, a, a lot of different ways, uh, and why you don't mean to belittle the experience 
can you talk a bit more about what was the experience like? How did you reach that aha moment as to, hey, this is how Courtney learns? And what were those, you know, tactics that you might have applied that helped you to thrive uh, while going through that um, academically rigorous experience? Sure. Um, so the analogy that that most people talk about for medical school is it's like drinking water through a fire hose, right? You've probably heard this before. And it is an, a, tr a tremendous amount of information that comes to you all at once. And so it's up to you to digest it, internalize it, and then uh, reproduce it. So um, for me, the way that I learn best is repetition. Okay, some people can read one page and they have it and they don't need to go over it again. Um, some people are visual learners. Some people are audible learners. Um, I am the kind of learner that um, I'm, I'm extremely visual and, and I need multiple reps. Um, I, I like to kind of create photographs in my mind of, of what I'm learning. Um, so when I got to the level of mastery for the material, I could actually see where that information was on the page. And that's how some people learn. Um, so for me, I had to develop like a study, uh, uh, kind of a, a study schedule or study study template. And I would go over that template 10 or 20 times before test. You know, um, I always had the work ethic. So, you know, there wasn't such a thing as doing it too many times. It was the number of times I needed to go over it until I mastered it. Um, and eventually you got it. And once you know yourself, you know when you have it. Uh, and then, you know, as my wife says, uh, you have to own the material. So. So we kept going over it until we owned it. Mm. And, um, eventually you do. Good stuff, good stuff. So you're wrapping up med school. I think the primary coursework is about, what, three or so years, then your last year you're doing your clinical rotations. Yes. So take us through that, that part of the journey. Okay, so first two years, like you stated, uh, are very um, in the classroom, um, didactic. The last two were more uh, applicable to the hospital, the clinic setting, um, and it's kind of on the job training. So uh, you, you were able to kind of distinguish yourself based on, you know, staying until the job's done, being the first one to show up. Um, you know, asking, you know, the appropriate questions that pertain to what you're doing. Um, use your personality, um, engage with patients, um, more of the softer sides of medicine, which I think probably end up making you a good doctor. You, you learn those two, those things in the last two years of medical school. And then you make the all important decision of, all right, uh, this doctor thing is cool and all, but what kind of doctor am I going to be? Um, and I think that's a critical um, decision that for most med students, not enough time is given to. Um, and so I am a mentor. Um, I'm, 
I'm a faculty member at, at, at a medical school here in, in Fort Worth. But, but more importantly for me, I'm a mentor for medical students, particularly in helping them decide um, what will be their specialty, what, what really is going to be your career path. Um, and I think that's kind of how you define uh, who you are, where your passions lie. So, so for me, I, I had um, a few different mentors, particularly in, in ophthalmology, and that's how I found uh, my specialty. So it was in a sense fortuitous or providential uh, almost that your mentors just happened to be in ophthalmology. Um, exactly. Okay. What was the, I mean, I, I presume you did a ophthalmology rotation during that time? Yeah, did, did ophthalmology rotations. Um, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon, um, but I, the ophthalmologist like, particularly my mentor, Bill Raymond, he was not only a surgeon, but he was the kind of person that related to people and was kind to people like I would want to be. Um, and so I guess essentially I, I saw myself in him, maybe vice versa, but, but um, that ophthalmology kind of allowed me to check all the boxes of not only being a surgeon and helping to give people their sight back, but also to um, engage with people uh, in the way that I wanted to. The ophthalmologists that I knew, they were good guys. I mean, you know, sometimes other specialties are maybe a bit more abrupt or um, maybe less kind. <laughs> I don't know how to say it nicely, but <laughs> I just thought that the ophthalmology guys were the good dudes that I wanted to uh, to emulate. So, real nice, <laughs> real nice. And so, uh, the next step naturally now becomes residency. So, mm -hmm. what happens during that phase of your journey? So, so my my residency was was unique because it was uh, it was in the army, and um, the army ended up paying for medical school. So, I got a scholarship to medical school that. But, but in return, I had to do my training in the Army. So that added another element of being a soldier and being um, a resident slash uh, trainee. Um, and when I, did you actually enlist into the Army? During, so my first year of medical school, um, Michigan State is an out of you know, it, it was out of state, right? So I had to pay out of state tuition. And uh, my parents were like, well, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta find some money, bro. Um, and the army scholarship uh, was one that, shoot, uh, was paying, it, it was available. Um, they accepted me to the program. Um, you know, I heard that army trained doctors were, you know, one of the, some of the best. So I, I kind of figured it was kind of a no lose. Um, yeah. So I went with it, but, but um, it's probably not for everybody. Like I said, you know, being a soldier doing um, kind of mission combat training sessions while you're a resident is, uh, 
it, it was different than my colleagues, let me say. So uh, mm. became my reality. Uh, but again, I mean, my medical school journey, just like the journey leading up to it, it had a few wobbles. It wasn't totally straight. You had to take a detour. So what if I had to be in the army and, and do some different things? I think in the long run, it made you better. At least it made you tougher, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So you discovered this program and I, I presume the army required some degree of commitment X amount of years in service in exchange for you for you being uh, enrolled in the program. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, the army it was a kind of one for one um, after your residency training. So the commitment. So how that plays out? You do four years of medical school, and then you have four years to pay back, but after you complete your training. And so, you know, that that's a big chunk of time in the military. And when you're young, sometimes time seems nebulous, kind of irrelevant. <laughs> you know, priorities for me were, are they paying? And so I'm going to be able to do whatever specialty I want. And both those boxes were checked. So sounded good to me. Um, the training in the Army was rigorous. I mean, they, those surgeons don't play around. I mean, they come from um, having done missions in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they bring those, those um, uh, skill sets, you know, to our residency program. Um, so they were no nonsense. They know that the stakes are high. If your battle buddy is, you know, in need of emergent surgery, you need to be able to do the things necessary um, to one, get him healthy and potentially back on the battlefield. So um, these surgeons were tight. I mean, they knew, they knew what they were doing. And, um, but, but, but you had the confidence to know that you were being trained by the best. Um, and, and it was, it was work. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's just incredible. Cause that's something that, um, I have not previously, I mean, I know that people are in the army and they're physicians and so on and so forth, but understand that program. Do you know if that program is still something that's available? Absolutely. The, um, the Navy, the air force, uh, maybe air force, the army and, uh, United States, um, uh, public health corps all have these, uh, four year scholarship programs um for medical school and then and you pay them back with four years of service after correct okay. so yeah so my training was four years mm -hmm. after that training you're committed to be at um some sort of military installation uh, military base um either domestic or overseas and for four years and oftentimes at that at that military uh, base. Um, well, well, fortunately, not only are you an officer, so, you know, that's that that rank structure affords you um, access maybe that that maybe enlisted some enlisted people don't have. Um, so it is good to be an officer. Uh, but you're also just because of the um, 
there's not many soldiers or or medical school graduates in the program, and there's a lot of army bases. So oftentimes it works out that you're put immediately into a leadership role where you're running your clinic or you're running your division. Um, you will be in a leadership role in addition to practicing your craft of internal medicine or surgery, whatever. So um, it, it's the duality that um, I think makes you a little more nimble and kind of prepares you for other things to come. Um, but you're not just a doctor. Like the army lets you know that like you have another mission that you have to accomplish. It's great that you're practicing medicine and all, but you owe, um, you owe your time and your leadership to your soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So what happens next after you complete your training? So, okay. So complete training. Um, and if I could just make just a, my own little kind of story detour, um, my wife and I got married right before, uh, right before residency. And she's a physician as well, not in the army. She went to Meharry, a historically black uh, medical school, which is phenomenal and I endorse it strongly. But um, so we got married right before training. And, and when we were trainees, uh, the medical work week for a trainee was somewhere between 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, now those have been um, shortened, mm -hmm. um, but it was a grind. And for newlyweds, in Washington, D.C., so she was at Washington Hospital Center. I was working at the Pentagon at the time. I mean, we never saw each other. So that's another little twist in, you know, not only learning to improve your craft with, with this residency training, but how do you be a good husband, a good life mate, you know, when you're newly reds? and you're just starting training, it was a whirlwind, right? And um, in training, you get moved around. So uh, my wife and I's joke is that from the time we got married to the time we finished all of our training, we had moved nine times. And so <laughs> we sent out a Christmas card uh, at that, at, I think it was probably our 10th year of marriage. And, um, and we said, save this address because we're <laughs> not moving. <laughs> <laughs> but you persevere, right? I mean, you know, life throws a few wrinkles. This, the, the path didn't seem totally straight. You know, I didn't stay in the same city of Des Moines, Iowa from the time I was in kindergarten to finishing medical school. Um, you know, but, but you relish the journey, but it never could have been predicted. So anyway, I digress. Um, let, let me kind of go back to where we were. Uh, finished residency, right? And now it's time for payback. That four years was done in, in Nashville. And then I'm absolved of my commitment, okay? So at that point, I'm, oh, I'm 33. Round 33, well-trained. Um, I finished as a major in the Army. And um, 
we were at another crossroads. You know, my wife and I decided, all right, well, where do we want to live? And does this medical journey kind of in here? Are we at the, the last point? And so um, we actually weren't totally satisfied. We There was another level of training that we both wanted. Um, and we want, both wanted to do a fellowship. So those can be one to two years. I wanted to become a retina surgeon. I, I was thinking, well, shoot, if I've come this far as an eye surgeon, I might as well try to obtain as as I saw at the tip of the spear, which is retina surgery. Um, so that was two years that um, we did in Boston. At the same time, my wife did a fellowship in, in pain medicine. And, um, and then we had two little, uh, two little babies that we were toting around. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, the plot thickens, but you know, you, uh, you, you, you kind of keep going. We weren't being paid very much. Uh, we went into debt tremendously, um, not because of bad choices, just we didn't have the benefit of scholarships and um, medical trainees are not paid very well. So uh, we did what we could, but we knew that on the other side, um, we could probably crawl out of debt and uh, and start to make a living you know, with our young family. So, yeah, yeah. So tell me a bit about retina uh about the the you know the the organ or or what what do i call a retina i mean it's yeah, part of the no. eye. yeah so, so talk to me about that and why how significant it was that you undertook that fellowship sure um so retina is just anatomically sometimes just kind of good to have a frame of reference you know, the eyeball is this organ, right? It's an organ. And there are kind of three main compartments to the eye. You have the front part, which is like a windshield. Okay, that's your cornea. And then you have the middle part, which is where your lens sits, like the lens of your glasses. There's a lens in your eye, and that develops into a cataract, okay? And that can be taken out. And then the very back portion of the eye is where the retina lies. I tell my patients that the retina is, it's like wallpaper. It sticks on the back wall of the eye. And for you to see well, your retina has to stay on that wall, not have bleeding, not have swelling. It has to just be wallpaper fixed to the wall. And so it's, it's, it's a very thin, uh, tr transparent uh, layer. Um, the retina is, you know, three, three, three centimeters, you know, it, it is incredibly thin, very small. And so the surgeries are the most delicate in, in medicine. Um, that, that uh, intrigued me, so to speak. I, I think I have pretty good hands. Um, man, I mean, I, I know I have good hands. And so, so I wanted to kind of be in a surgical subspecialty where, you know, it, it, dem it demanded, you know, fine dexterity and very steadiness. And, uh, and I kind of like the stakes being high. I mean, you, you make the wrong move or <laughs> your hand shakes and, and someone can go blind. So, mm. um, but, but all that's relative, right? I mean, you know, just like neurosurgeons or heart surgeons, you know, uh, that's my frame of reference. And so that's where I feel comfortable. 
um, just as they feel comfortable in their in their element. So, um, so yeah, so the retina, as I saw it, and this is just my opinion, I saw retina surgeons as the baddest in ophthalmology, or at least that was where the rubber meets the road. The, the retina patients are blind, they can't see, they need a doctor, and you have a chance to fix them. So um, that was the draw for me uh, into retina. Um, but there's many specialties in ophthalmology. I just happen to like retina. And I did like the fact that um, it was a subspecialty that I didn't see other people that looked like me. I wasn't the first black in retina, please. But um, there's not many. There's not enough. Um, and and we need more. So that that was another draw. Not only that that many black people can go blind from retina conditions. So um, yeah. So that so that was the draw into retina. It is a two year fellowship. Um, mm -hmm. The community is very small. Um, it's dominated by um, people that don't look like us. And so it was another challenge, uh, just like Fulbright, just like medical school, where I wanted to see, um, can I gain access to this? I mean, is this, it, it, have I pushed it to the limit too far? Like maybe, maybe I can't, maybe I wasn't supposed to get in here. Maybe this is too far, uh, but I really wanted to know. So um, I applied um, and fortunately, thanks to the army, I got into the top programs. I had my pick of, um, so my program was, I was at Tufts and Harvard, but you know, the top programs, whether in Miami or um, in Michigan and Iowa or in California, all the top programs said, you can come here if you want. So, and I really give credit to the army and the training um, to do that. Incredible. So that that's another value add that that experience sort of, um, added and bolstering sort of your profile. Um, now that that's this is just truly and incredible. I um, so not trying to boast because I I've had enough hiccups along the way. But um, you know, for for young people, be it doctors or whatever field, I, one thing that I'm very proud of, and I just think that. God has a very interesting sense of humor is um, I'm now uh, a board examiner for the American Board of Ophthalmology. So remember, failed the medical entrance exam. <laughs> and now in order to become a, an eye surgeon, <laughs> you have to go through me. I actually give you the test <laughs> to mm. approve whether you got into the specialty. I just think that irony can only be created by uh, by God. It's just, um, you know, I'm just, I, I'm very thankful. It's it, it's really not my doing, but it, it makes a, a neat little twist to the story. So, I mean, you're never done, right? I mean, even if you fall down or if the detour happens, uh, you just got to keep taking it because you, know, you don't know where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm. So what happens next? You guys finally settle down. You send that 10-year anniversary card, <laughs> the address. We're not moving. Where did you decide on settling? 
uh, and building your career? Sure. So we decided our criteria was uh, we just want to be in some warm weather uh, with nice people, some good values. And so we we decided we were going to be in the South. So North Carolina, or Georgia or Texas. And we were just going to kind of go where the opportunity felt right. So we settled in Dallas, Fort Worth. That's where we are currently. And uh, if we had the chance to do it all over again, we would we would do it the same. Um, we love it here. We think there's a lot of opportunities in in Dallas, Fort Worth, and um, yeah. And so, when you started working in Dallas, Fort Worth, did you just sort of go into a, a traditional hospital uh, setting as an you know as a new surgeon at that point? Yeah, so I decided to, to join a, a retina-only practice. Uh, and there's a few different routes that you can go. Of course, you can be solo or you can join a multi-specialty group. Um, I just wanted to be with uh, colleagues that um, did things the same way. Um, it, can, it can help keep your overhead down, which is kind of more of the business side of medicine, but uh, also it gives you the chance to kind of collaborate and kind of share in your patients. So um, yeah, good practice. Um, seven other guys that, that all do the same thing. Mm. Um, and so now, you know, my day as a, as a retina specialist, um, I'll operate a couple times a week. Um, I'll have clinic the remainder of the days of the week. The clinic days are very busy. Um, we see typically 70 to 80 patients a day. And um, we do a lot of lasers, a lot of uh, injections. Um, it's just when, when the stakes are high and people are losing their vision, um, they just need to come in and, and be seen. So, so our policy, my policy is, you know, if you're losing vision, I want to see you the same day. Mm. Mm. And then along the way, I don't know how long you've been with that practice or if you've remained with the same practice, it sounds like, but you also uh, wind up in, you know, in a faculty position. Is that a typical route where you also pick up, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a position in academia or was that something, how did that all come about? Yeah. Uh, I like teaching. I mean, not all, not all specialists want to be in a teaching role, but uh, I do like um, kind of engaging with medical students and trainees. Um, I still feel like I'm a kid. It seemed like it was yesterday, even though I'm 42 and, it wasn't yesterday, but <laughs> but uh, I just think it's important. Um, you know, Bill Raymond reached back to me, and that's why I'm here. And hopefully, um, hopefully, uh, some young person I can reach back to, and and I can help them. Um, that's the only way that we can keep this cycle going. Absolutely. And um, you know, I want to inspire. You know, first off more black men to pursue medicine and um, surgical subspecialties. Um, but, uh, you know, just young black people in general, 
Um, they need to know the ropes. And, and, and there's so much that's not discussed in our stories um, from, the, uh, from the disappointments to the pitfalls to uh, the successes, um, the things to watch out for. I just, I just don't feel like the entirety of, of someone's story is always told. So, so it is my duty, uh, my personal duty to be transparent. And um, I want you to know, more importantly, my failures and the successes. But, um, you know, that oftentimes people just want to know that they're not alone. And um, there's many different ways to get to one place. So that's why I chose academia um, as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's remarkable that you shared what you just shared, the importance of being transparent. You know, I will often lament the fact that for a lot of brothers or black folks across the board, we don't understand basic concepts like money or finances. Why? Because it's never talked about. And there are so many other aspects of living that we just never are, you know, informed about at an early age. So you're going through life and walking sort of blindly. And so the flip side of it is even in the professional context, uh, we often get just the stories of the glory, right? But people don't understand what's behind that glory or how difficult uh, it was. I'm in a real estate business and I, I, I share this with people. I say, every developer talks to you about the deal that worked out well. They never tell you about the ones that go fast. Your willingness to share, that's just powerful. And, and, and you sharing, I want to ask this question. You talked to us about how difficult and, and challenging, challenging it must have been uh, to have the MCAT turn out uh, in such a dismal fashion for you the first attempt. I had to imagine that perhaps caused a low point on the journey. Are there other low points uh, along the way? Uh, definitely. I mean, <laughs> you know, the um, <clears throat> standardized tests in general have, have been challenging all the way up until I took my board exam. And my board exam happened to go very well. I, I knew ophthalmology well at the time, but best believe every board exam preceding that was a challenge. Um, the other challenge was, um, you know, having a bit of a circuitous path. You know, I saw that as, you know, me being maybe lesser than, than my counterparts who went ba-bing, ba-bing, ba-bing from one thing to the next thing to the next thing almost seamlessly and stayed on that straight path. Um, I felt because mine was a little bit um, jagged, if you will, that, uh, you know, there was something wrong with me or, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or um, does it always, is it always so hard? Um, when does it get to be easy? So, you know, all those thoughts of self-doubt Am I doing the right thing? Was I made for this? Um, you know, I had it all, you know, and only now, 40 plus, and am, I, am I confident and can say, yeah, this is what I was supposed to do. But I mean, for 20 years leading up to it, I mean, 
that was a struggle because it was hard. I mean, every day was hard. And um, I think the lesson, you know, that you can take from any field is, you know, even though something is challenging, um, that doesn't mean that it's not for you. Um, and I think just society in general, they think that if, if you're supposed to do something, it should almost like unveil itself and, and you just walk into this easy path. And I think that's just not realistic. But people don't tell you that as, as you shared. I mean, you know, people want to quickly always tell you of the successes, but, but you really want to hear about the challenges. Cause that, that's, that's where you learn. Yeah. Um, and, and if I could just say one thing, you know, even just in medicine, um, there are many different facets to make for a good doctor, but there's many things of doctoring that you don't learn in medical school, um, like wealth management, um, like understanding how to treat and, how to treat people well and how to connect with people. Um, I use, um, lo and behold, a third of my patients are exclusively Spanish speaking. So I use Spanish every day. That kind of came full circle. But, but my point is, is that, you know, you're going to be learning um, many other elements that make you you outside of maybe what you're sitting there in a class for and all those elements i feel come together in a in a unique way you know for each person and it's it's fun to help help young people see how all those little points they they can come together and they will um even though it seems nebulous when you're getting the um you know, when you're drinking water through the fire hose, it just, it doesn't seem to all come together. At that time. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you're still so young, but what advice, if you could go back looking retrospectively, would you offer a 20 or 30 year old version of yourself? Oh, uh, wow. Every day is a, is a new challenge. And um, tackle just each day. I mean, I'm a planner, right? So I can pl- easily plan out the next 10 years of my life. Um, but if you don't find enjoyment and fulfillment in every day, that destination that you set out for 10 years, it just doesn't mean a whole lot if you didn't enjoy the journey going through it. So. Yeah, I'm very intentional about um, what is today hold, you know, how can I maximize today? How can I, you know, love my wife and my kids more and better and, uh, you know, give better care to my patients or just be just, just a dude that, you know, is just trying to make himself better. But it's daily, man. So that's what I would that's what I would tell Courtney 20 years ago is, yeah, OK, have that have that 10 year goal. But uh, have that goal for the day, have that goal for the week <laughs> because it goes quick. It does. It does. Uh, such salient advice. Uh, how would you r- recommend to 
a younger person who might be pursuing medicine and they've listened and say, yes, I need a mentor, but how do you best extract value out of a mentorship relationship? Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Not all mentor experiences are created equal. Hmm. Um, I mean, and, and to be honest, it, that you do have multiple mentors along the way. Um, I think it is incumbent upon the mentee to also seek out the mentor. If the onus is not always on the mentor to reach back and find young people that you know he can or she can help bring up. The mentee, I think, has to be deliberate about finding people that if if they value this that looks like like them that might act like them um that is willing to show them and teach them um bill raymond is one of my best friends and he will forever be that mentor for me but i sought him out um there is a book called uh, african americans and ophthalmology and i desperately wanted to get in and I wanted to know who were the black people that had blazed this trail before me. And he was in the book and he was an army ophthalmologist. I said, Lord, is this a sign from you? <laughs> and I contacted him. I cold called him and said, hey, my name's Courtney Crawford. I wanna become what you wanna become. Uh, you need to teach me. So, <laughs> and he's, he's just a great guy and amazing sense of humor and, um, we happen to be in the same fraternity. So, um, uh, <laughs> so he said, you know, come out to where I am, spend some time out here, do a rotation and the rest is history. But, but you know, going back to the original question, um, the onus is not always on the mentor. Mentees, you, you, can, you can sink your teeth into, you can identify some of us. Uh, and just for the record, I would state that that fraternity is Kappa Alpha Psi, if I understand that correctly. <laughs> you know, I have to get that in. I couldn't help it. Um, beyond Billy Raymond, who are some of your sounding boards? Yeah, I, I was blessed. So my parents were always there. Um, they were always there to to listen to my how am I going to get into med school stories or, um, you know, aside from that, I, I have good friends, you know, a lot of them started at Wash U and, uh, black men and we're all trying to grind it out. So, you know, we, we check in, we sometimes frequently depending on the season of life, but, uh, you know, we check in and kind of keep people supported. So, you know, it's, not complicated. You know, we've all kind of had the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. You've got you to lean on to those people that love you. Um, and, you know, it's easier to do things together than it is, you know, by yourself on an island. So, you know, reach out, reach out to those people who love you. Well, as someone who is such a planner, this ought to be an easy question. What's your long term big picture? long-term big picture um 
So I still want to become an ambassador. Okay, that's <laughs> true transparency. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that that's a good gig. If, for the young people out there, I mean, ambassadorship is a good gig. But uh, I do want to become, um, uh, just professionally speaking, um, I would like to be, um, a retina surgeon that can maybe reach maybe a broader audience. Um, I think retina blindness is still, it's the, the level of awareness. Um, it, it's not there like some other fields of medicine, like breast cancer. They've done a phenomenal job of, of really putting that, um, um, I guess really being deliberate about, you know, what the disease is, how you can seek help, you know, who are the key players that, you know, can assist you. And, and I would like for vision and, um, you know, blindness prevention, I would like for that to be on a similar platform. So um, that's kind of just a professional, personal mission of mine. Um, I do a lot of mission work where we go to, I've been to Africa and South America, uh, I think 10, 11 different missions. And so that's a professional passion of mine is to go to um, developing nations. I still don't really like that word, but it's better than third world, but um, go to nations that, that need assistance and, um, and do surgeries. And in the eye community, you can make a profound impact in someone's life trajectory just by doing one surgical intervention. And that's incredibly rewarding. And I feel like that's a blessing and honor to provide that. So I do want to continue that um, and, and it's not done enough. So um, maybe there's an opportunity to have um, large organizations comprised of black people that give care to, to other blind black people maybe. So um, that's a, another professional goal. Um, aside from that, you know, I, I, I talked about my daily quest, so I, I still want to be a better father, a better husband. Um, and that can't be understated because, um, at the end of the day, your greatest influence is your most in your, your most intimate sphere of influence. And, um, that's oftentimes for most of us, our family. Yeah. or our church, or even our work environment. So um, I think it's important not to lose sight of who do you have the opportunity to influence daily and, you know, be purposeful about doing your job of influencing them. The ambassadorship is cool, but probably not going to influence a whole lot of people with that. So. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I want to deviate for a second and we're going to wrap up here shortly, but can you talk to us a bit more about blindness in, in, in the sense of the distinction between blindness caused by the detachment of a retina versus sort of the blindness experienced by someone like Ray Charles, who had his vision till he was about eight years old? Excellent. So... Um, blindness can affect 
extremities of life. That's generally where it exists. So there's a condition um, called retinopathy of prematurity. Babies that are born premature, um, like, uh, let's see, like Stevie Wonder, for example. I'm sorry, actually, Stevie had glaucoma. So like Ray Charles, right? So Ray Charles was had retinopathy of prematurity. Um, and for those babies, their retina is detached from birth. Um, they don't have the opportunity to develop vision unless it's repaired um, when they're newborns. And so we, we do that. Um, Just so you do know, Ray Charles actually had his vision till he was like eight or something. So I don't think he, he wasn't born blind. Ray Charles wasn't. Right, but but he um, he was, and I'm, I'm almost certain he he did have retinopathy of prematurity, okay. and which vision was very poor. Got it. it very uh, that, poor. The, that's what I thought was the distinction I wanted you to make. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So very poor vision, but there's a difference between being blind and having very poor vision. Being able to see something allows you to have a different quality of life than seeing nothing. And not to say that if you're totally blind, you can't have a good quality of life. It's just dramatically different. Stevie Wonder, he had um, childhood glaucoma and um, he lost his vision um, very early as well. So, so anyway, these... Um, that's kind of one extremity of life for um, vision loss. The other extreme is um, older people, 65 plus, more towards 75, 80. They have um, um, not only, they can have diabetic retinopathy, they can have retinal detachments, and they can have macular degeneration. Those are the big three that can give people um, blinding eye conditions um, later in life. So, um, you know, it's we do a variety of things to 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 restore vision and to keep vision good. So, um, this is an exciting time in our field. Um, the drugs that we inject into the eye, and I probably do thirty injections a day. Um, they have revolutionized retina and they have given people sight where 30 years ago they were written off as all right you here's your white cane and you are blind for the remainder of your life so but now these people see they drive it's it's, it's amazing it's, modern medicine is is phenomenal um there's different surgical techniques that we can do now that can take somebody from 2400 so that's um that's really poor vision, um, almost counting fingers, um, and make them close to 2020 um, by um, by operating on the retina, either repairing a retinal detachment or closing a macular hole. Um, we can do those things with surgery. Um, the future is bright. I mean, I, I tell my patients with macular degeneration, I tell my patients with um, really advanced diabetic retinopathy, and, and this is not to um, um, 
this is not to tout how good of a retina specialist I am, but the, the, the technology, the level of care that we can provide you now, as long as you follow our guidelines, you will not go blind in your lifetime. I make that statement all the time to patients and it's, and it's not blowing hot air. I mean, it's speaking based on uh, defined clinical trials and, and, and research and just speaks to the level of progression in our field. Um, the normal person that had a previous blinding condition should not. And if they stick with their retina specialist will not go blind in their lifetime. It is so exciting to say that. Fantastic. And, and truly, I'm glad you shared that because that was some uh, very important information uh, for people, knowing that people do have hope and blindness isn't this sort of certainty that uh, people might have faced in the past. So with that, I'd say if there's some closing comments that you'd like to offer. You know, I, I, uh, I think one of the themes during this, this talk is, is, is transparency and, and being accessible. And I would just like to offer um, to any young person, if you haven't gathered, I'm pretty passionate about, about young people and, and you, um, you know, excelling and, and fulfilling your dreams. But um, contact us, seek us out uh, as mentors. Um, you never know where you might just gain a little nugget that can kind of keep pushing you along or redirect you. Um, so I'm not, <laughs> I forgot who's the rap artist that I, I'm not hard to find. Anyway, I'm, I'm not that hard to find. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I appreciate the time today. Um, this is, this is awesome. Time well spent. And I know we could go on and yeah. on, but I want to just recap. You've talked to us about the importance of having a strong work ethic uh, really having a willingness and openness to broaden your horizon uh, and, and also being willing to follow sort of the unconventional pathways. Uh, you talked about your personal passion for not just re reaching for the tip of the spear, but also willing to take on the high stakes challenges. Uh, my guest today has been Dr. Courtney Crawford. My name is Lalu Davis-Yamitan, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Thank you, Lalu. Thank you. I'm going to do things, things. Brother, you're going to win. I'm so...